This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Totem Last week, we mentioned how we would love to have an assistant here at the Word of the Week. A friendly, loyal helper. Someone to fetch us research from the internet and beverages from the fridge. Perhaps a magically enslaved spirit in the shape of a cat. A familiar. After all, we have to research and write and produce and distribute these episodes. It's a lot of work. And we'd love to have some help. Meanwhile, there's you. The listener of said episodes. Who we lead along on these meandering journeys from word to word and idea to idea, guiding you through the historical, mythical, and pop-cultural wilderness and offering you the occasional life lesson. And there's an interesting parallel there. See, we want a familiar spirit, and that's a distinctly European idea rooted in classical mythology, as we explained. But you want something different. You want a spirit animal. A magical guide, at one with the world, to guide you and to teach you, and to be your companion. At least, you want a spirit animal in the modern pop-cultural conception of a spirit animal. Among certain classes of modern spiritualists, especially on the internet, spirit animals are all the rage. Which is why it's hard to find actual useful information about the origin of the concept. The popular view is that there are these spirits who take the form of animals and they will appear to you in your time of need to guide you through your hardships and teach you important lessons. All you have to do is be open to the idea of a ghost animal appearing in your dreams and offering advice. And follow the advice of whatever spiritual website you happen to be reading. Give it a try, and let us know how it works out for you. Now, we don't mean to cast aspersions on any deeply held beliefs. The problem is that that sort of take on spirit animals isn't really anyone's deeply held belief any more than your newspaper horoscope reflects actual astrology. For more on that, check out our episode on the Zodiac. Point is, most people are distilling that spirit animal thing from what they see as traditional Native American beliefs. It frankly isn't that simple. Yes, some Native Americans believed, and still believe, in the concept of spirit animals. Well, they believe in the concept of totems, but the whole thing is a lot more complicated than simply saying, well, I'm pretty lazy and I eat a lot, but I'm very protective of my family, so my spirit animal must be a bear. Time to go hibernate in front of the TV. It's a big, sprawling wilderness of many different ideas, legends, and mythologies and it often gets confused with other ideas, legends, and mythologies, and generalized a lot. The idea of spirit animals is actually pretty common in human cultures across the entire world, especially outside of Europe, though Norse mythology also included aspects of spirit animals. Essentially, the concept of spirit animals comes up in two different classifications of human faith and spirituality. First, there's animism, and second, there's totemism. And while these things seem similar, they have important differences. Let's start with animism. Animism is the belief in anima, and that comes from a Latin word that is generally thought to mean soul or spirit, but it actually refers to a gust of wind. And that wind became associated with breathing, and therefore with living. 
And so anima became the word for a vital force, a force of life. The thing that animated a living thing that made it alive. See? Well, it's actually a little more complicated than that because the Latin word was actually animus. And that came from an older Greek word, which came from an even older words, yada, yada, yada. Now, Latin is one of those languages where nouns have masculine and feminine forms. Actually, that's pretty common. Lots of languages do that. And lots don't. It doesn't matter. The point is that animus and anima are just the masculine and feminine forms of the same word, a vital spirit, an animating force, a breath of life. But they became associated with slightly different aspects of that vital force. Basically, the masculine and feminine qualities of the spirit. So the animus was associated with rational thought, courage, desire, which is why animus by the 19th century also meant temper or anger. Like animosity. Meanwhile, anima represented the soul, spirit, and emotion. And then came Carl Gustav Jung, a Swiss psychiatrist who founded the School of Analytical Psychology. Remember him? We talked about him back in our dragon episode, because he was very big into symbols and archetypes and the collectivus unbevustus. The collective unconscious. The collection of symbols and archetypes and concepts that all people share at the heart of their psyches. Well, he had another idea too, a, a similar idea. Basically, it came down to this. The human psyche is composed of parts that include the traditionally masculine and the traditionally feminine. In men, the masculine side is dominant and the feminine side is more of an unconscious influence. And the opposite is true in women. In Jung's view, learning to understand and incorporate that unconscious part of your psyche appropriately was part of psychological self-development. He named the feminine unconscious in the masculine psyche the anima, and he named the masculine unconscious in the feminine psyche the animus. But we digress. Animism isn't a faith or mythology in itself. Rather, it's a quality that many faiths and spiritual doctrines share. It's typified by a belief in innumerable spirit beings that share the world with humans and are concerned with human affairs. Animism can include the belief that plants and animals and places and things all have spirits that humans can interact with. But it also includes belief in angels and demons that influence human behavior for better or for worse. And it also includes the belief that the spirits of one's ancestors can influence one's life. Hence, animism is a quality of various religions and mythologies. It is also extremely common and very broad, very general. Now, it might seem obvious how animism feeds into a belief in spirit animals, but it doesn't have to. And in fact, the difference between animism and totemism can be most clearly illustrated in one of the most well-known American examples of non-totemism that is mistaken for totemism. We warned you this was going to get confusing, and that's why we're here to guide you. Contrasted with animism is totemism. Totemism is the belief in totems, obviously. But what's a totem? A totem is a species of plant or animal 
or some other natural or supernatural phenomenon that has a deep symbolic meaning for a person or social group. Whereas in animism, animals and plants might have actual spirits, in totemism, they could just possess meaningful qualities. Which brings us back to the concept of Jungian archetypes. Recall that Jung said that we basically all, in our minds, associate certain symbols and images and ideas with certain qualities. And because those symbols and ideas are derived from very ancient cultures and values, they're pretty universal. It's as if we all share this collection of unconscious ideas. Collective. Unconscious. See? And there's nothing mystical or magical about it. You know what else is often misunderstood as being mystical or magical? Totems. Spirit animals. And that's entirely due to a translation error. As we mentioned, when you think of spirit animals or totem animals, you probably think of Native American spirituality. The religious beliefs of the people who lived in North America before European explorers showed up. And that's fair enough, for various reasons. But it's also wrong, for several reasons. First, it's important to note that there isn't one set of Native American spiritual beliefs. And that's because there isn't one Native American culture. And to understand the reality of Native American cultural and ethnic diversity, we have to go back a long way. A long way. Longer than you learned in school. See, until the late 1980s, it was believed by most historians and anthropologists that the first Native American people had arrived in North America about 13,000 years ago by coming across something called a land bridge. Now, a land bridge is a narrow bit of land that connects two larger land masses, like an isthmus. But land bridges are distinct from isthmuses, in that they allowed plants and animals and human cultures to spread from one major land mass to another. Technically, the Isthmus of Panama that connects North and South America is a land bridge. The thing is, though, that the phrase land bridge conjures up an image of a tiny little strip of land. And that's the image you probably got in school of the Bering Land Bridge that stretched from the Chukchi Peninsula in northeastern Russia to Alaska in North America. A thin little highway of land, with ocean waves crashing on either side, across which a tribe of native people wandered from Asia to North America. Well, no. We now know the so-called land bridge was actually huge. It was a giant landmass in its own right, covering the entire Bering Sea and stretching up into the Arctic Ocean. It was about a thousand miles wide from north to south. Today, historians don't call it the land bridge anymore. They call it Beringia. Because a landmass that big deserves a better name. What happened was this. Around 40,000 years ago, the Earth was descending into another Ice Age cold snap. And the ice caps were expanding as a result which is what caused all those glaciers to spread across the northern hemisphere, as we discussed in our episode about moraines. And as the ice caps expanded, they absorbed a huge amount of water from the oceans, causing the sea levels to fall. As a result, the shallow Bering Strait 
and the Chukchi Sea and bits of the Arctic Ocean and all the shallow ocean between Alaska and Siberia ended up above the sea level. And so, Beringia emerged. And people didn't merely cross Beringia. They lived there. Beringia may have been inhabited for as long as 20,000 years, between 30,000 and 10,000 years ago. And the Stone Age hunter-gatherers who spread from Asia and then spread down the coast of North America were called the Paleo-Indians. But by about 6,000 BCE, some of those groups were starting to give up the hunter-gatherer thing. They became archaic cultures. Now, you probably think of the word archaic as meaning old, and it does. But it comes from a Greek work, archaikos, which means beginning. And archaic cultures are called that because they represent the beginning of civilization. See, an archaic culture is a culture that has given up following herds and migrating and traveling all over the darn place and has instead started returning to the same places every season. That allowed them to do a couple of important things. First, they built settlements. Second, they noticed that plants had life cycles and kept renewing themselves in the same places every season. And thus, agriculture was born. At least in some places. See, around 10,000 years ago, the glaciers began to recede, the sea levels began to rise, and Beringia was swallowed up by the sea once more. And so the Paleo-Indians had to migrate, and they spread throughout North America over the next 4,000 years. And as the Ice Age subsided and food became plentiful and agriculture became a possibility, they started to flourish. They gathered in larger bands, the agricultural ones settled down, and even the migratory Paleo-Indians eventually gave in to the archaic way of life. And each group adapted to the conditions of the location they eventually settled in. Historians recognize approximately ten different broad Native American cultural groups that developed during this period. And that's mostly due to linguistic and cultural similarities between different tribes. Across northern Canada, Alaska, and Greenland, you had the Arctic cultures, which included the Inuit and the Aleut. Many of these groups remained nomadic and followed game migration patterns across the tundra. But some of them settled down a bit, living in small fishing villages with dome-shaped sod, timber, or ice houses. In the swampy taiga and southern tundra of Alaska and Canada were the subarctic cultures. They included the Algonquian-speaking Cree and Ojibwa and the Athabascan-speaking Satin and Kuchin, and they were small, sparse, bivouacking groups who lived in easy-to-move tents and lean-tos or underground dugouts. Because of the difficulty of crossing the marshy taiga, they relied on toboggans, snowshoes, and canoes. Along the eastern coast of Canada and the eastern coast of the present-day United States, as far south as North Carolina, you had the Northeast Cultural Group, and those included two different linguistic subgroups. The Iroquian-speaking tribes that included the Erie, the Oneida, the Seneca, and the Cayuga, and the much more numerous and widespread Algonquin-speaking Pequot, Shawnee, Fox, and Delaware. These cultural groups lived in fortified, politically stable agricultural settlements, but their lives were fraught with conflict as the different tribal groups raided and made war against each other. To the south and along the northern shore of the Gulf of Mexico were the southeastern cultures. They lived in market villages and were expert farmers who grew staples like maize, beans, squash, tobacco, and sunflower, and they included the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, the Creek, and the Seminole. 
Because of their advanced and stable civilization, those tribes are often referred to as the Five Civilized Tribes. Across the central plains of the present-day United States were the Plains Cultures. These are the teepee-dwelling nomadic hunter cultures who lived off the great herds of buffalo and were quick to adopt horses when Europeans brought them to the New World. Interestingly, these tribes were more archaic than nomadic before the introduction of horses. They included the Crow, Blackfoot, Cheyenne, and Comanche. Across the southwestern deserts in North America, you had the southwestern cultures. They lived in permanent Pueblo settlements made of stone and clay, called adobe, and farmed corn, beans, and squash. And by the way, the document software company, Adobe, is only called that because they were founded in Palo Alto, California, along the Adobe Creek. The founders named the company after the creek, not the tribe. But we digress. The Pueblo dwellers included the Hopi, Zuni, and Yuma. The region also included more nomadic hunter-gatherer groups such as the Navajo and the Apache. West of the Rocky Mountains, in a great bowl bordered by the Rockies, the Sierra Nevada Mountains, and the Colorado and Columbia Plateaus, lived the Great Basin Cultures. Highly nomadic groups like the Bannock and the Ute foraged for seeds and nuts and hunted snakes, lizards, and small mammals across the wasteland region of salt flats and brackish lakes. Their cultures were informal, ephemeral, and ever-changing, and they lived in compact shelters called wickiups, which were made of willow poles and brush. With its temperate climate, the California region sported the largest and most diverse Native American population in all of North America. More than 100 tribes and groups lived there and spoke 200 dialects of at least five different major languages. Despite their apparent diversity, the California Indians all lived very similar lives to each other. They lived in small, family-based bands that frequently traded and intermarried with each other and coexisted peacefully. They didn't practice much agriculture, as resources were plentiful in the mild region. In the highlands of present-day Idaho, Montana, and inland Oregon and Washington lived the Plateau cultures. Groups such as the Klamath, Nez Perce, Walla Walla, and Salish lived in small fishing villages along the region's many rivers and survived on fish, trout, berries, roots, and nuts. And to the west, along the northern Pacific coast, dwelled the Northwest Coast cultures. Like the California cultures, the Native Americans of the Chinook, Sahelish, Simshian, and Tlingit benefited from the abundant natural resources and mild climate of the region. And so they built large, permanent villages which adopted a rigidly stratified social structure. Social status was extremely important in these villages and was determined by the closeness to the village's chief and to the number of possessions they had. Such status symbol resources might include blankets, shells, skins, canoes, and slaves. These possessions played an important role in the potlatch feast. During a potlatch feast, possessions would be given away or destroyed as a way to demonstrate the possession of wealth. I'm giving away all my stuff. Heck, I'll even destroy it. Who cares? I have so much stuff, I don't have to worry about it. Now, Here's where things get interesting. The word totem comes from an Ojibwa word, and an Ojibwa tradition. They were a subarctic, archaic culture that migrated across Ontario and Manitoba. In the summer, they gathered at fishing sites in small, impermanent villages. During the autumn, they would separate into family groups and disperse into individual hunting areas. And they had these complex rules about family, group, and tribal relationships. And they had a word that signified family relationships that were close enough to forbid marriage. A totemon. Now, the Ojibwa had other traditions as well. 
a belief in animism unified under a great spirit for one. In particular, family groups wearing animal skins of particular animals to identify themselves. And so a British translator took the word atotemen and derived the word totem. That was around 1790. And he misunderstood totem as a guardian animal spirit rather than two people who wear the same animal skins or symbols because they are related by blood to each other. Whoops. That's not to say some Native Americans and many other groups don't have spirit animal or guardian spirit traditions. Just that the word totemism is kind of, well, it's the wrong word for it. And speaking of that, let's mention totem poles, which have very little to do with the misunderstood meaning of totems as spirit animals and everything to do with totems as important symbolic representations of certain qualities and ideas important to a family group. But weirdly, totem poles also have nothing to do with the Ojibwa and the subarctic native cultures. Remember the northwestern Indian cultures with their stratified complex societies based on status and relationships to a hereditary chief? And also that whole potlatch status ceremony? Yeah. Totem poles were their thing. Now, we're assuming you've seen a totem pole. It's a vertical pole carved from a tree trunk in the shape of various animals all stacked on top of each other. And they are just one of those things that has become part of the modern, imaginary, Native American monoculture. But they were distinctly Northwestern. The first totem poles were carved as part of potlatch ceremonies. See... Totem poles were expensive and time-consuming to make. It took a lot of time and manpower. Specifically, a skilled carver and his helpers would take between three and nine months to carve a single pole. So having one made was a sign of wealth and status. And the first poles were called potlatch poles. They were constructed to commemorate the wealth of the sponsor of a potlatch ceremony. Those evolved into entryway or welcome poles which high-status individuals would erect outside their houses to identify themselves or which villages would erect on important waterways to symbolize their ownership of that waterway and the land around it. And the symbols on the poles evolved to depict important events. Thus, important families had heraldic poles to record their histories and villages had legend poles, memorial poles, and burial poles to record various historical figures and events. And if you owed someone money, or had committed a crime and that person was wealthy enough, they might erect a shame pole to ridicule you. That showed that they were wealthy enough, and you were shameful enough. That they could waste time and energy having a giant tree trunk elaborately carved just to make fun of you. Over time, an elaborate symbolic language developed for totem poles. Each animal depicted on a totem pole had a specific meaning. Each color also had a meaning. And tribes and families had special animal totems. Even things like position and direction were important. It was all very similar to European heraldry. And served much the same purpose. It was a way for the wealthy and affluent to record their family history and rub it in the faces of those who weren't as great. But we digress. The point we were trying to make was, well, we're not really sure. We sure had a point when we started this. About how we would be your spirit animal, your guide through the wilderness, except that the whole concept of spirit animals and totemism 
is kind of a tangled mess of different beliefs combined with mistranslations, and it was sort of... sort of... Uh, lost in a vast wilderness that's hard to find your way through, or something. Where are we? I don't know. Maybe a guiding spirit animal is better than a familiar after all. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>